Good morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 21. And we'll read the first 21 verses. Holy Scripture says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up, he lived in the wilderness, and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is the word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, uh, we, we thank you for the word of Scripture that instructs us and steadies us and helps us understand the world that we live in, understand the God who made the world and calls us into fellowship. 
And Father, I just pray that you would cause your light to shine in our hearts through this passage this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we begin to walk through this passage, it's important to foreground the faithfulness of God, the primary reason why it is important to put the faithfulness of God front and center is because this is exactly what Genesis 21.1 does. The emphasis in verse 1 is the Lord's activity performed in accordance with what He had declared beforehand. And, and that's, that's what faithfulness is, to do what you said you would do to keep the promise that you made to carry out the plan you had revealed beforehand. A faithful person says what he means, means what he says, and then does what he says. There is a proverb that indicates that it's difficult to find exemplary faithfulness among men, right? Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find Proverbs 20, verse 6. A faithful man who can find. It's a rare find. But by contrast, God's faithfulness shines brightly for all to see. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And the the promise there harkens back to chapter 18 when the Lord was speaking with Abraham and Sarah was in the tent and at the tent door listening in and the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Since Sarah had been barren for her entire adult life and she was now past childbearing years, the Lord would have to take action to open Sarah's womb, which is just what he did. About one year after the promise made in chapter 18, the Lord returned to Abraham and visited Sarah as he has said. The Lord kept his word, not only in showing up at the appointed time, but in making sure that a, new, that a newborn boy also showed up at that very moment. The Lord's miraculous womb-opening action of verse 1 the Lord did to Sarah encompasses the entire nine-month span from conception to birth. And so just as we, just as we begin this message, it's, it's good for us to always be remembering the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God in the big things, the faithfulness of God in the small things, how, however it may be that you are waiting for God to come through for you, whether it's uh, the, the equivalent of a well of water in the wilderness or daily bread or grace for every trial or strength to sustain you or wisdom to guide you or abundant mercy for your many sins. God is faithful. We always need to make sure that we are banking on His faithfulness. So Genesis chapter 21 begins with the Lord's faithfulness flying 
high as a banner over the blessings that he is bestowing on Abraham and Sarah and through them to the whole world. For we remember God's promise back in Genesis 12 to bring blessing through Abraham to all the families of the earth. And so as we, as we see the Lord's faithfulness on display here, we remember that this faithfulness through Abraham, through Isaac, is for our good, that the blessing of Abraham might overtake us. So with that faithfulness of God in the foreground now, let's move to verses 2 to 8, where Isaac is conceived, born, named, circumcised, celebrated by Sarah, weaned, and celebrated by Abraham. Okay, let's just walk through this. Uh, first, Isaac is conceived. That's mentioned in verse 2. It obviously took place nine months earlier, but it's included to give the full picture. Second, Isaac is born, still in verse 2. And the end of verse 2 again highlights the Lord's faithfulness. It says, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. God is right on time. Third, Isaac is named. Verse 2 doesn't actually mention Isaac by name. It simply refers to his son. The naming comes in verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Now, actually, Abraham naming Isaac, Isaac, was an act of obedience because the Lord had told Abraham back in chapter 17, that you will have a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And so Abraham is acting in obedience there. And it's really interesting. I, was, I, just, I read something the other day, a comment that uh, the three great patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, Isaac is the one of the three whose name was, was never changed, right? Abram, the Lord changed the name Abraham. Abram to Abraham, and the Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel. But it makes sense, right, that the Lord never changed Isaac's name because the Lord is the one who gave the name Isaac in the first place. No need to change it. And it's a way of saying Isaac is special. Pay attention. Fourth, Isaac is circumcised on the eighth day, verse 4, Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. That also, so we see, another act of obedience on Abraham's part. And this is interesting because uh, the Lord gave the covenant of circumcision to Abraham back in chapter 17 when Abraham was 99 years old that he and every male member of his household should be circumcised, and, and Abraham acted promptly in obedience at that time. He was circumcised when he was 99. He circumcised Ishmael. Ishmael was 13 years old, and he circumcised every male member of the household. But what stands out now about Isaac is that uh, the, when the Lord gave the instruction to Abraham back in chapter 17, he said that the plan going forward was for the males to be circumcised on the eighth day. Of course, that first round of circumcisions, they couldn't do that because the Lord didn't give the instruction to Abraham until he was 99. But, but now here, Isaac 
uh, the, first, the first one we know of to be circumcised on the eighth day under the covenant of circumcision. And that again highlights Isaac. Isaac is special. Pay attention. Fifth, Isaac is celebrated by his mother, Isaac, uh, by his mother Sarah in verses 5 to 7. The birth of Isaac filled Sarah with wonder and amazement, not the ordinary wonder and amazement that any parent would feel in the birth of a child, but extra doses of wonder and amazement because of the sheer odds of an old couple like Abraham and Sarah not having a child. Both verses 2 and 5 call attention to Abraham's old age, right? Verse 2, Sarah bore Abraham a son in his old age. And then verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Of course, we know that Sarah was 10 years younger, so she was holding fast at 90 years of age. And with all of this in mind, Sarah's great joy comes into view in verse 6 and 7. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. That question, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? One commentator said, uh, God. That's that what God said. Only God would have said that. How beautiful that God makes a certain kind of laughter a gracious gift to the fragile human heart. God has made laughter for me, Sarah says. How beautiful that God makes a certain kind of laughter a way for some people to rejoice with other people. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. It is sheer astonishment to Sarah that a baby boy is upon her lap. Against all ordinary expectations, I have borne him a son in his old age. <clears throat> of course, much more needs to be said about laughter. In fact, there is a sense in which laughter ties the whole passage together. Remember, first of all, that there are different kinds of laughter. There is the laughter of disbelief. It's ridiculous, right? There's the laughter of joyful astonishment, and there's also the, the, the laughter of mocking and scorn. And uh, all, all kind of come into play in the uh, passages related to Isaac. It's important to remember that the name Isaac actually means he laughs. The first mention of Isaac's name was given to Abraham in chapter 17, and it was in response to Abraham laughing in disbelief when the Lord told him that Sarah would bear him a son. Abraham laughed. He thought that was silly. And God responded, says, well, I'll just read uh, Genesis 17, verses 17 and 18 after being told that he was going to get a son by Sarah, it says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And then God's reply comes in verse 19, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. You shall call his name, he laughs. In one sense, God's decision to name the son Isaac, he laughs, in response to Abraham's laughter of disbelief is a way of saying that this is no laughing matter. 
God means business, and He's going to do what He promised. But in another sense, by looking ahead to Genesis 21, which is where we are today, God's decision to name the son Isaac, He laughs in response to Abraham's and Sarah's laughter. Sarah laughed the same way in chapter 18. It's a way of saying that I will answer your laughter of disbelief with the laughter of joyful astonishment. And so the laughter of disbelief fades into the background. Isaac proves to be no laughing matter as a real baby boy is up on Sarah's lap. And then the laughter of joyful astonishment breaks forth over Sarah, and Sarah knows that this laughter of joyful astonishment will break over many people on account of what the Lord has done in providing Isaac. So Isaac embodies the laughter so to speak. But the laughter itself, the joyful astonishment and the good news on which it is based, it's a gift from God. God has made laughter for me. It's beautiful. This, this kind of laughter is a holy joy at the unexpected and surprising good news of God's gracious work in our lives. So I'm not talking about the ministry of, you know, ordinary laughter, you know, laughter is good medicine for the soul. It might be, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, what's in view here is it's the kind of joyful astonishment that a leper might have experienced when the Lord made him clean, or the joyful astonishment that the prodigal son might have experienced when he was feasting again at the Father's table, or the joyful astonishment that a guilty sinner might experience when she has heard the Lord say, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Or the joyful astonishment that one of the early disciples might have experienced when he really came to understand that truly the Lord had risen from the dead. Great joy that the Lord brings to his people. As for Abraham and Sarah, they had been on an eventful journey with the Lord for decades from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran to Canaan to Egypt and back again and to Hebron and recently down to Gerar. They've had direct and troubling interactions with the Pharaoh of Egypt and the king of Gerar. Abraham conducted a military rescue operation against four kings several years earlier. They'd seen Sodom and Gomorrah utterly destroyed just a year earlier. They attempted to get a proper heir for Abraham through Sarah's maidservant Hagar, but that only proved to be a dead end. For this entire journey, the lack of a proper heir had hung over their lives, and now at, at last he arrives. This little boy who's at the very center of God's plan to build a holy people and bring blessing to the whole world through Abraham. Sarah didn't orchestrate it. Sarah didn't manufacture it. Sarah didn't make it happen. Sarah didn't deserve for it to happen, but it happened. The laughter of joyful astonishment for a weary heart. God is good. Life has been sweetened. Savor the moment. Sixth, Isaac is weaned. Verse 8, and the child grew and was weaned. We've traveled from God's promise a year before Isaac's birth to the conception nine months before the birth to the birth itself and the naming and the circumcision, and now we're fast-tracked through infancy, the child grew, to the point of weaning, 
which might have taken place when Isaac was around three years old or sometime thereafter. And then seventh, Isaac is celebrated by his father Abraham. It says, Abraham made a great feast on the day when Isaac, that Isaac was weaned. Sarah's joy was emphasized in verses 6 and 7. Now Abraham's joy is emphasized in verse 8 with this great feast. And why not? Isaac is a living demonstration of God's faithfulness. Isaac represents God's plan far into the future. And besides that, Isaac certainly brought his father Abraham a great deal of joy on a human and familial level. If it makes sense to throw a feast... For the prodigal son who returns home, it also makes sense to throw a great feast for the son of promise who will carry the mantle of covenant leadership into the future. Tis mercy, all generous festivities are in order. So the banner of God's faithfulness and gift of joyful astonishment comes into clear view in verses 1 to 8. Things are looking bright, and then... Remember what I said last week, life is messy, don't pretend otherwise. There's a, there's a turning point which takes place, which sours the mood. We would, we would like to live in perpetual joyful astonishment, but uninterrupted joyful astonishment will only be ours in the new heaven and the new earth. Until then, whether it's the mundane or many griefs and sorrows, our joys often are interrupted. And so as I mentioned earlier, the idea of laughter is a link that holds the entire passage together, and the turning point in the passage involves laughter. And there's irony here because Sarah had just said a few verses earlier, everyone who hears me will laugh over me. Now in verse 9, Sarah sees someone laughing, and it's not funny. But this is, you know, this is not the laughter of shared joy. Sarah is irritated at this laughter and reacts harshly to the one laughing. Let's pick it up there in verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Sarah's joyful contentment of verses 5 to 7 is now interrupted because Ishmael, the son of Hagar, bore to Abraham in chapter 16, is laughing. This laughter is not the laughter of joyful astonishment. Ishmael's laughter is almost certainly the laughter of scorn and mockery. And there are three reasons for reaching this conclusion. Reason number one, Hagar looked with contempt on Sarah in chapter 16. So it kind of sets the stage for Ishmael to look with contempt on Isaac in chapter 21. Second reason is that when Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, reflects back on what transpired with Sarah and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael, he says, Paul says, at that time, He who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, Isaac. And then Paul says, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, right from Genesis chapter 21. So thus it seems that Paul 
regards Ishmael's laughter as a form of persecution against Isaac. And mockery, mocking laughter, is indeed one form that persecution can take. And the third reason for thinking that Ishmael's laughter is the laughter of scorn and mockery is because of Sarah's extreme reaction, which suggests there was something very unsavory about Ishmael's laughter that pushed her over the edge. Sarah couldn't bear to have another woman's proud 17-year-old son, if, uh, if, if Isaac was around three, then Ishmael was around 17, okay, 14 years older. Um, she couldn't bear to have another woman's proud 17-year-old son looking down upon her son of promise and spoiling her laughter and joy. Sarah couldn't bear to have Hagar and her son remain in the house with her and Isaac. Therefore, she is urgent with Abraham. Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Isaac is the son of promise. He's the appointed heir. Ishmael has no share in the covenant leadership that will pass from Abraham to Isaac. Ishmael will only be a persecuting thorn in Isaac's side and a great irritant to Sarah. He has to go. And by the way, just a little parenthetical comment here that's worth, worth saying. I was looking at uh, Matthew Henry's commentator, commentary this morning, and he said, rightly, mocking is a great sin and very provoking to God. And sometimes we don't take the sin of mockery as seriously as we ought to. Uh, making fun of people making light of people, looking down on people is wicked. And it destroys brotherly affections. It hurts people. It ruins relationships. Siblings do it. Students do it. Co-workers do it. Sinners did it to Jesus on his way to the cross. And when he was on the cross, which we just sang about, this morning. Don't make light of the sin of mockery. It is an affront to the dignity of God's image bearers, and it has no place in our lives. So, returning to the flow of thought here, first, Sarah's joy is interrupted, and uh, now, with her insistence that Hagar and Ishmael be cast out, now it's, now it's time for Abraham's joy to be interrupted, right? The joy of the great feast of verse 8 now gives way to the displeasure of verse 11. It says, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. From a physical standpoint, Abraham was as much the father of Ishmael as he was the father of Isaac. We may assume that Abraham had a tender-hearted affection and a sense of paternal responsibility for his older son Ishmael, and therefore kicking Ishmael out of his house was not the sort of thing that Abraham had any interest in doing. Sarah's proposed course of action displeased him. Another uh, nugget I got from Matthew Henry this morning is he, he, he said that it's probably the case that uh, Abraham was also grieved that Ishmael had given this provocation to his, to his three-year-old son Isaac. Uh, as all parents know, parenting is tough business. And this would have really grieved Abraham's fatherly heart and love for both of his sons. Of course, 
Abraham is the one who should be exercising leadership, right? He shouldn't be passively compliant toward his wife. Adam got in trouble in Genesis chapter 3 because he listened to the voice of his wife, Genesis 3.17. And the whole fiasco with Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael happened because Abraham had listened to Sarah's voice, Genesis 16.2. So here in Genesis 21, if Abraham immediately proceeded to heed Sarah's voice, we would be very suspicious that something was amiss. But God forestalls that possibility by speaking directly to Abraham about the matter. But God said to Abraham, verse 12, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. In this case, it is right for Abraham to do whatever Sarah tells him to do because the Lord commanded Abraham to do that, which means that Abraham's consequent action to kick Hagar and Ishmael out must be understood as righteous, the right thing. And this helps to explain why Paul viewed it so positively in, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, which I encourage you to read sometime. It's a fascinating application of this passage. And yet, there, there is heartache and heaviness to what happens here. But in the end, Abraham's action must be viewed as having God's approval. When God speaks to Abraham in verses 12 to 13, God counsels Abraham to let go of his displeasure. Abraham needs to come to grips with the fact that Isaac is the son of promise and Ishmael isn't. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The mantle of covenant leadership will pass to Isaac. The covenant family will be built through Isaac, not through Ishmael. In addition to coming to grips with the fact that Isaac is the one with the unique place in God's plan, Abraham also needs to trust God to watch over and prosper Ishmael. And I will make a na nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. God cares for both of Abraham's sons. And both sons are included in the scope of his providential care. But this does not mean that both sons get the same set of privileges. God is God, and he distributes his callings and opportunities and responsibilities and privileges as he sees fit. Isaac has a special calling upon his life that Ishmael has no share in. And by the way, one more indicator in this passage that the emphasis is on the specialness of Isaac it lies in this fact. The name Isaac occurs five times in this passage, in verses 3, 4, 5, 10, and 12. Do you know how many times Ishmael is mentioned by name in this passage? Zero times. His name is not mentioned once. I'm using his name because it's convenient. We know who he's talking about. That's his name from chapter 16. It's convenient to say Ishmael instead of her son all the time. But he's not mentioned at all, which is a way of saying, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Isaac is special. Pay attention. As difficult as it might have been to put off his displeasure Abraham responded to God with obedience, and he sent off Hagar and Ishmael, furnishing them with modest provisions in verse 14. Thus, Abraham 
bid farewell to his firstborn son, about 17 years old. From now on, Abraham would have to trust God to provide for Hagar and the boy. The contrast is profound. In verse 8, there's a great feast happening in Abraham's house. And in verse 14, Hagar and Ishmael are wandering in the wilderness with meager provisions. All according to God's will. But this doesn't mean that Hagar and Ishmael Ishmael are forgotten by God. Scripture presents us with the true God who is sovereign over all things and who says and does things that do not conform to our expectations. This fact should not surprise us because God is holy and all-powerful and we are sinful and weak. So when we come to Genesis 21, verses 12 to 14, a superficial reading of the text might have led us to assume that God is abandoning Hagar and Ishmael. Of course, there are times when God does abandon people, and when God abandons people, it is right for him to do so. God just recently destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet here in Genesis 21, even though God approves of Abraham putting Hagar and Ishmael out of his house, this doesn't mean that God is putting Hagar and Ishmael out of his care. The promise of verse 13, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman, already alerted us to God's care for Ishmael, and now we get an up-close and personal view of that providential care in the following verses. After a time of wandering in the wilderness, eventually the skin of water ran dry, and thus Hagar anticipated the dehydration and death of her son. Hagar couldn't bear the thought of watching her son die, so she put Hagar over there under the bushes, and she went over there uh, some distance away. Another powerful contrast. Sarah elated over the arrival of her son, and Hagar grieved in heart over the anticipated loss of her son. Hagar is in deep anguish, and she lifted up her voice and wept. And we learned back in Genesis chapter 16, when Hagar was experiencing a different affliction, we were told that the Lord heard Hagar's affliction, and that's actually the reason why her son Ishmael was named Ishmael, because Ishmael means God hears. God heard Hagar's affliction in chapter 16, so we're wondering, will God hear Hagar's affliction in, verse, in chapter 21? Well, what's interesting is, I mean, he does, but what's emphasized is that God heard, the, God heard Ishmael, God hears, God heard the voice of the boy, verse 17. Presumably, Ishmael was crying out in some way, and then we are told that the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. In Genesis chapter 16, Hagar needed to know that God saw her. Now in Genesis 21, Hagar needs to know that God sees her boy. Therefore, the reason that Hagar can let go of her troubles and be unafraid is precisely because God has heard the voice of the boy where he is under one of the bushes out in the wilderness. God sees. The knowledge of God's attentiveness to Ishmael along with the knowledge of God's promise to make Ishmael into a great nation should give Hagar courage to keep taking care of her son. And that's what That's what she does. Although Hagar and Ishmael are now cut off from any provision from Abraham, 
they are not cut off from provisions from the Lord. As it happens, there was a well of water nearby, but her eyes hadn't seen it. Sometimes we need God to open our eyes to see what is right in front of us. Then God opened her eyes, verse 19, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. The immediate crisis was averted, and the stage was set for God's continual care for the boy in the years ahead. God was with the boy. He grew up. He became an expert bowman. He lived in the wilderness, and he married an Egyptian woman. Once again, we are struck by God's providential care for Hagar and especially for Ishmael. In due course, they will fade from the scriptural storyline because they are outside the central storyline of the covenant family. But being outside the central storyline does not mean being outside of God's overarching care. God's care extends to the nations, to the end that they might come to know him. In Ishmael's case, God's plan to make, na to make a nation of Ishmael is tied to the fact that Ishmael is Abraham's offspring, right? Verse 13, because he is your offspring. So God's eye is upon the covenant family, and yet further review, he's also paying attention to and providing care for other people out there in the world. I, we've, we've hit on a few applications along the way. I just want to leave you with one, with one, one thought to, to think, think about, about what we can learn from this passage. I think one of the things that we need to learn from this passage is that we have to put our entire focus in life upon the promise of God and upon the reality of what God is doing. Um, and I want you to see this from Abraham's perspective. Because from Abraham's perspective, Ishmael represented his own attempt, his own fleshly attempt in his own fleshly wisdom and strength, along with Sarah, their fleshly attempt to secure their future, to get an heir, to build up their house, okay? It was, it was their own attempt to do it. And our own attempts to do it are always a dead end. And so what I'm about to say is, I'm not giving you parenting advice, please. I'm trying to get to the, the heart issues of, of where our focus in life is, is that in a very profound moment, Abraham had to cast out that which represented his own fleshly attempt to secure his future. And he had to be solely focused on the promise of God, Isaac, the promise of God, what God was going to do through him in building up a family. And it's very interesting, when you turn to chapter 22, the stage is set, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son. Your only son? That's right. As far as God's promises are concerned, Isaac is Abraham's only son now. And we got to ask ourselves, where's our focus? Are, 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 we get so caught up in the things that we try to pull off in our own strength. But what we need to make sure that we're doing is that we are, we are dialed in 
to the work of God, the work of God in fulfilling his promises, the work of God in sending the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, the work of God that he does through the Holy Spirit in regenerating sinners and building his church and transforming our lives. As we, it's just very simple, just a very simple thought as you think about your life as an individual or as a, as a, and as a family, as we think about our congregation, where's our focus? What we're doing and our own wisdom and strength are we really anchored in and glad to be anchored in the work that God is doing in our midst? So chew on that. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would learn from Abraham to let everything go that doesn't pertain to the promises of God, that our sole hope and confidence in having a good future, not only in this present life, but forever, would be found in your gracious work through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, in and through the body of Christ, that we too would do our part to proclaim the good news to the wider world of what you have accomplished. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.